starting a brand new series today. We're calling the Bonsai Way. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because of something I'll explain in just a moment. But when I was growing up, I grew up in the 80s. Uh, if you've been around too long, you've referenced that a lot. I'm an 80s kid. And there were lots of really great movies in the 80s. Can I get an amen in the house? I mean, just great movies. Uh, I mean, it, movies were so good in the 80s that when the box office was struggling this year, they just redid a movie from the 80s, and it's the biggest movie of the year. And so it's, they were great movies, whether you were talking about a movie like Top Gun or John Hughes classics like Ferris Bueller or Sixteen Candles or fantasy adventure ones like The Princess Bride or the never ending story, which when you watch back with your kids, you realize it's really weird. <laughs> really weird, right? So, like, they were great, but there was one movie that stood out for me that was one of my all-time favorites. It was an underdog story about a fish-out-of-water kind of story about a kid who moved and was new in the area and had a hard time finding his way and got in trouble with the local kids, the older kids, the bullies in the school and ended up trying to find his way and found a mentor that helped him figure all of that out. And as he figured all of that out, he learned some life skills along the way until he was able to crane kick the enemy at the end of the movie, right? I'm talking about Karate Kid, right? I loved the movie. I loved the relationship between Mr. Miyagi. Again, movies are so good in the 80s that one of the most popular series today is a further story of this movie. They made multiple sequels. The second one was pretty good. After that, we don't talk about it. The first one was really really good. And there's a scene in the midst of that movie. Not long after he had gotten beat up and his bike had kind of destroyed and he comes home from school after another hard day, Dan Goldberg so walks up the steps and his bike is sitting there completely fixed. And he goes down to find Mr. Miyagi, this older man who had saved him in the midst of that time, to thank him for it and to kind of Ask him to make sure it was him, and when he walks in, Mr. Miyaki is doing something strange to Daniel. You've got a picture of that particular scene. He's working on a bonsai tree. Now, I just want to be honest with you, when I was uh, nine years old, this movie came out, and we were watching at friends' houses, at that point in my life, growing up in the northwest corner of Tennessee, Culture was not something of other places that I knew a lot about. And so I got introduced to a bonsai tree concept there, but it's obviously been around for a long time. It's an art form where the attempt is to train, that's the word they use, a tree in a small pot to be able to look like a regular tree, just miniature size, and it takes lots of effort and work. But when you do, people create masterpieces out of it. In fact, um, I've got some pictures of some bonsai trees that are just remarkable. For instance, this first one is one that's over a thousand years old. It's in a museum, the bottom class, but it's been living for over a thousand years and cultivated. Uh, the next one is one that is just beautifully done, and it sold at an auction for $300,000. I don't think you can go down to Dean's Nursery and grab that one, right? But that's not the most expensive one that's ever sold. The most expensive one that's ever sold is this one. 
and it sold for just somewhere north of 1.2 million. And so people cultivate and build these art forms out of the trees. And back in the movie, Karate Kid, there's this moment where Mr. Miyagi says, do you want to try, Daniel? And Daniel says, no, he's reluctant about it. He says he doesn't want to do it. And then he sits him down. He puts him in front of the tree. He gives him the little shears. And he says, this is how you do it. He says, you need to block out all the distractions. You need to block out everything else. And then you form in your mind the picture of a perfect tree. And as you fix in your mind that picture of a perfect tree, open your eyes and prune and cut and tie until the tree appears. The Bible has lots of agricultural metaphors for our lives. The Bible's filled with images. Even last week we talked about being rooted in Love, rooted and established, that our roots are growing down. You think about Jesus' parable of the four soils, where he's talking about what it takes to have the Word of God indwell in our heart. There's descriptions of us being like a tree planted by a stream of water. There are all of these images in the scripture of agricultural ideas. But perhaps the most famous one for us as believers in Jesus Christ happens in John chapter 15. And here's what I want to do in this series is we're going to use John 15, the first few verses, as kind of the basis today to talk about what it takes for God to form us into that picture in his mind of what we are to become and be, the tree that he is making us into. I want us to talk today about what is required in that, the painful part of that, and then over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about the specific ways and instruments and tools that God uses to form us into, that God uses to prune us and to mold us and to shape us into the tree that he wants us to be. The bonsai way of imagining the end and then seeing how you prune it to get there. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says, I am the true vine. By the way, this in the Gospel of John is the seventh of seven I am statements. Um, we did, not that long ago, a series on the seven miracles of Jesus. The, the book of John also has seven I am statements where Jesus proclaims who he is. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is able to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. So the picture that we have in here tells us exactly what it is that God is doing in our lives. Now, the picture that is there is a branch that is connected to 
the vine that is connected to exactly where it needs to be for the life-giving source that will come that will allow it to produce fruit. And so the picture that is here of what God is forming us into is a disciple abiding in Christ producing fruit. That's what God's picture is of me and of you. Now, that might look slightly different in our particular context and where we live and where we are in the moment and the influences that we have around us. But God's picture, if you will, would be metaphorically speaking as he closes his eyes. When he closes his eyes and imagines what he's forming in you, what he's forming in you is a disciple who is abiding in Christ producing much fruit. That's what it tells us in verse 5 here. The way that we have named that, the, the, the name that we have given to it around here in our purpose statement of who we are, is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become, and then we put in there what God's picture for us is, passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. People that are living out what God has called us to do. People that are in love with Christ, that are connected to Christ, that are abiding in Christ. And as a result, we are producing the fruits that God wants us to produce. Throughout Scripture, it gives us what we're supposed to be shooting for, what we're supposed to be about. And as a church, we're reminded in the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28 that God, when he left this earth in the person of Jesus, when he left, he told us that he had given all authority had been given unto him. And that we are to go and make disciples. Let's look at that verse together. Matthew chapter 28 says, Jesus came here and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you to remember. I am with you always to the end of the age. So we go from the very beginning of our part of the ministry, where Jesus leaves and hands it over to his disciples, that the goal is not converts. The goal is not people that just give mental assent to the divinity and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but that the goal is the disciples, people that are learners, that are living it out, that are doing what God has called us to do. This summer in our VBS, we talked about our theme verse was a picture of what it is that God has for us. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's hard for me not to sing the song now, right? Can I get an amen for the BBS? Which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That we were his workmanship. That word can be masterpiece. It's his piece of art. It is his top kind of understanding of what a masterpiece work would be. We are his opus. And God created us for good works. Colossians 1.28 tells us that the goal is that we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The word mature there means complete, perfected. It comes from the Greek word teleos, which is like the end of or the final product, the thing that we are to be, that we always are meant to be, but we cannot do on our own. The idea is that the goal, the picture that God has for us is that we will be completed human beings 
that are created in the way that God wants us to be recreated, if you will, redeemed and shaped for Him. Or lastly, in Romans 8, 29, it says, For those He foreknew, He also predestined, and this is the important part for this message, to be conformed to the image of the Son, that we are to be like Christ. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So here's the point that's going on here. Is when we think about that quote from Mr. Miyagi, that we were to, he was telling Daniel to imagine the tree that you want and then just begin to work towards it. When God is imagining us, he sees the future, he knows the end result. He is not trying to imagine something into being. He knows what it's going to look like. He knows what you're going to be like. We know that Scripture teaches us that those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, that we have been saved, our past has been forgiven, that we are being empowered in this moment, and we are being sanctified, changed day by day towards that ultimate picture that God has for us. And in the end, we will be glorified and we will be perfected in Him. And so as God sees what it is that He has for us, the question becomes, then how does He get us there? How does He form us? And there's lots of ways He can make sure that we're in the right environment. Just like you were with a plant. Give it enough light to be able to grow. But in this particular passage, when Jesus is talking to His apostles, by the way, this is in the upper room of the discourse where it is just moments before he's going to be betrayed and arrested. These are final instructions he's giving to his apostles. I mean, shortly after this, by the way, and I think that it goes right into this, and it's part of what we're going to talk about a little bit, is he talks about persecution being happening. And he talks about the Holy Spirit's coming to them, and he prays for them. But before that, he gives them this imagery of being connected. And he tells them that the life that we're to live is not all about the Jews and the adults, although those who went to it, but that it's about the relationship with Jesus, connected, that we are to the vine, making sure that we are connected at all times and allowing ourselves to be molded by the Father. And in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it gives us a glimpse of one of the ways, or one of the major ways that God shapes us into the people that He wants us to be. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch of me that does not produce fruit, He removes. We don't have time today to go into the full understanding of what that is. There are multiple ways to understand that. For us and today, I want us to focus on the second part of verse 2 because it applies to those for sure, those of us that are followers of Jesus, that are working uh, in our lives to try to work out that salvation He has put in us. The second part of verse 2 says, And He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. A couple of things to notice about that, and then we're going to talk about what He exactly prunes. Do you notice that it's very specific here that he prunes the ones that are already, at least in some way, healthy? What I say, that God's picture of us is that we are connected to Christ, abiding in Christ, and producing fruit 
Here it says in verse 2, he prunes every branch that produces fruit. See, in our society in America, and in kind of the way that we have lived in recent years, there are lots of people out there that think that if you're doing what God wants you to do, there will be nothing painful in your life. If you're just following Christ, there won't be anything painful. Again, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that part of the process of following Christ is being molded into the people that God wants us to be. And part of that process is pruning here in chapter 15 of God. In Hebrews 12, it's discipline from the Father that He prunes, that He works on, that He cuts away things in the life of those that are already producing fruit. But you'll notice in this passage, he prunes with a purpose. He prunes those producing fruit so that they will produce more fruit. And here's what I want to tell you. There's no way that you can experience pruning in your life and it not be painful. We're talking about shears cutting away parts of your life. We're talking about the Lord removing things from your life. But one of the things that we have to understand as we walk with the Lord through this is that even though pruning feels painful, it isn't punishment. We're going to end today. This is give you a little preview. We're going to end today with a story in the book of Mark that many of you know, but there's a detail in the book of Mark in that story that I think is vital for us to understand. And it shows us that what is happening in our lives, when God allows things into our lives, or God intentionally does things in our lives to prune us, so that we might produce more fruit. You know what pruning is, right? It's cutting back. It's taking away stuff that doesn't need to be there. We, we had a fun afternoon at our house yesterday. We trimmed almost all of the hedges in our house. Now that's fun. That's exciting. And I would rather be anywhere else but there most of the time. At least it wasn't 100 degrees hot, but it was still warm. But why did you cut back hedges? Well, first of all, they look horrible, but they also tell you that cutting them back allows them to bring new growth. So what is God pruning in our lives? Three things that I'm convinced He prunes in our lives to make them more like Him. The first is He prunes dead and diseased branches. So what is that? That's the sin and the bad habits and the thoughts and the emotions and the things that you have that are destroying your life. I know this church, when we come to church, we try to act like everything's great. We ask people in the hallway how they're doing, and it doesn't matter if their life is falling apart. And most times they're going to tell you, great, ah, good. But the truth is, Scripture tells us that we are people that are daily in need of a Savior. And as I speak to you this morning, every one of us in this room has some dead and diseased parts of our lives that really need to go. 
some sins that are familiar and that we hold on to, some areas that have bad habits that we walk away, some areas that God has asked us to give up again and again and again and again. And we're like, yeah, I'll get down to that. Aren't there other things? Well, have you noticed what my friend has in their life? Have you noticed what my spouse has in their life? Well, what about my children? You know what? We, we really need that. We try to take the focus off. But we all, if we are understanding what's going on in our lives, if we are self-aware at all, know that there are dead and diseased parts of our lives. And we know that because God brings that to the surface in a variety of ways. He will prune us by the Holy Spirit convicting us and telling us and showing us and guiding us and giving us understanding that we need to get rid of that part of our lives. Sometimes by revelation, you'll bring what's happening in the dark into the light. And again, we see that sometimes it's punishment. It's not punishment, it's pruning. It's pruning with a purpose. God sometimes allows us to be found out in our bad habits and our sin so that it can be pruned and it can be moved away. Sometimes it comes from godly friends helping us see what's happening in our lives. But one of the first things that God's going to remove in our lives to prune us, to make us more into that picture he has of the end of our lives is he's going to remove dead and diseased parts. Let me ask you, what sin, what hurtful habits, what, what things have just become part of who you are? Maybe because even in this moment you need to ask the Lord, what do I need to see as sin and a hurtful habit because I've convinced myself otherwise? Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and leave me in the way of my life. But the prayer for you in this room today needs to be, Lord, show me the dead and the diseased parts of my life. He needs to. He can be painful and hurt. The second kind of thing that improves in our lives are what, in technical terms, is called a sucker branch. I didn't know a whole lot about sucker branches before this week. I saw this term somewhere and I was like, what is that? Uh, just to let you know, uh, I do not have what you would call a green thumb. Uh, if there's such a thing as a brown thumb, because everything dies that I touch, it grows like that. I have that. I have things that have grown in my house that I did not intend to grow from my house, and I didn't know why. We have wild strawberries sometimes that kind of grow in our house. Don't know how they get there, why they're there. I don't know what's about bubbling and they're bowed up. That's what happens. Or we need to go, there's some strawberries. Look at that. Didn't know that. That's awesome. Uh, we we randomly planted a squash one day, and it produced the largest squash I've ever seen in my life. Right on our back porch. We didn't know that, all right? But if I'm trying to grow it, it does not grow. But for what I've heard, people that, especially like tomato plants, that if you're growing tomato plants, that sometimes what will happen, we'll have the vine, the tomato vine, and you'll have a branch that's going to produce the fruit, a a, a fruit-producing branch, and in the middle of that will be a little branch that comes up. Now, some of you are some of you are gardeners and are like, "Could you? This is ridiculous how you're trying to describe this." All right, it, it comes up right here in the middle, okay? And it takes nutrients and it takes vitality from the branch that's producing the fruit, but it doesn't produce anything. It's sucking the nutrients out. It's a Sucker branch. 
Can you go back to the picture for a second? And there are things in our lives that are separate branches. Not necessarily all bad things, but things in our lives that take away the nutrients, that take away the good, that distract us from what God is turning us into. And as a result of what happens there is it's removing nutrients, it's removing life, and it's not doing anything else. It's not being productive in our lives. It's not helping us in any way grow towards the people God's called us to be. But it's just there. Recently, I saw a, a, a online survey asking believers what were the things in their lives that were pulling their energy and distracting them from following Jesus. And you can imagine, there was some sin on there, there was some guilt, there was some shame, but a lot of it was just this kind of separate branch kind of stuff. Somebody put news obsession. Always wanting more news, having the news on all day long, always hearing what's going on by the news, looking, reading the comments. If you're reading the comments on news articles, you've gone too far, all right? If you're commenting on news articles, you've really gone down the path. Okay? The online news stuff. What's in the news? What's happening in the news? Gotta stay up there, get out of that. It takes away our attention from other stuff. Social media. Is number one. And, and that's not a young person issue, that's an all ages issue. We find different ways for it to be an issue, different platforms, different apps, different understandings, but screen times have risen for all age groups in the last five years significantly. Maybe not social media, maybe streaming. Some people are like, well, I stream on my phone, so all kind of bolts together. I stream on my phone with a news feed on the left and people talking to me on social media on the right. It's all right there. Sports as a spectator or a participant. Hobbies. Things that aren't productive at all. A long time Tennessee football fan. Volunteers. And the only thing that's produced for me in the last 10 years is anger. <laughs> Can I get an amen at the house of the Lord? That's it. False hope. Crushed dreams. And anger. This year's going to be different. I'm convinced. So that thing. We're not careful those things can suck the life out of us. Some of these are relationships that are productive for you, and they're sucking the energy out. God needs to cut in and prune it, sniff it. Third thing that God brings in our lives, and then we're going to do a story, we'll be done. Healthy branches. This almost seems counterintuitive, right? This isn't something I've come up with. It's right there in chapter 15. He prunes away every branch that produces fruit. Only healthy branches produce fruit in this scenario. Everything we have in this place is that it's producing fruit. And yet he cuts away at it in order that we may produce more fruit. 
back. There are some things in your life that are good, but God wants to remove them for something great. And you're walking with Him. Can I tell you, this isn't any easier than the other two. In fact, because these things have a grip in our lives, they can be painful at every step of the way. And so here's what I want you to think about over the next few weeks. Because over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the tools God uses to prune us. We're going to talk about the tools that God uses to shine light on us, the tools that God uses to water us, the tools that God uses to create in us that picture that's at the end, that bonsai tree picture at the end of what we are to be. What are the tools that God uses? But one of the things that has to be in our minds as we enter into that is, what is it that God needs to prune from our life? What is it that God needs to use the tools we're going to talk about it to remove from my life, to encourage in my life, to give me in my life? And so, what I want you to think about today is, what is dead and diseased in my life that needs to be removed? What in my life is a sucker branch? Now, please don't at lunch today go out with a friend and say, I'm removing you from my life. You are my sucker branch. Okay? Don't do that. All right? You may need to remove from your life, but don't tell them they're the sucker branch. What is it in your life that is taking vitality, taking nutrients, taking time, taking nourishment and producing nothing and is not helping you towards that picture of what God has for you, fully formed and complete disciple of Jesus Christ who is remaining in him and producing fruit? And then what are some things in your life that may seem healthy right now that you're willing to say to the Lord, you're willing to lay on the table and say, Lord, if you want to take this, if you want to do this, you can have it. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story of a guy that comes to Jesus, bows there, and asks a question that all of us have either found the answer to or are looking for in our lives. What must I do to return to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds quickly with, you know the command, you know what the Bible says, follow that. And he says, I've done all that. I've done every bit of that. I've done this, I've only taken a man once I haven't killed anybody, I haven't stolen, not worship idols. From everything we can tell, there's nothing sinister about that. He's not trying to fake out Jesus. He's not trying to put on a facade. I, I really believe that he's done all of these things, that he got everything kind of together. But what he didn't realize is that he still had something in his life that he had ahead of Jesus that was required of him, that was to be pruned from his life in order for him to truly follow Jesus. If you remember the story, it says that Jesus looked at him and said, there's one more thing. I need you to take everything that you own. I need you to sell it. I need you to give it to the poor and then come follow me. And then scripture just says, the man walked away with sadness because he had a lot of stuff. 
One of the things that happens easily in our lives is that we get disordered loves. We get the things that we are to love out of order. And in this man's life, there was something he loved more than his commitment to Jesus. My kids growing up would sometimes ask me the do you love me more than question. Dad, do you love me more than football? Yes. Some of those questions are easy, right? Do you love me more than popcorn? Yes. Do you love me more than the church? Yes. Do you love me more than my brother? No, it's the same. That's what we're supposed to say, right? Sometimes my kids would ask that when their sibling got in trouble. I found like, oh, they're in trouble. They're having a problem. I bet you love me more now because I'm not. Do you love me more than Jesus? Well, we don't necessarily show that with our lives. Sometimes our priorities get out of whack. What I think is fascinating about this in Mark chapter 10 is when the rich young ruler that we now call him comes to him and says that he has this. And Jesus says, one more thing I require of you. One of the things it says in that passage right before he says that he is requiring this of him. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then asked him this question. Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would look at this guy, if we knew him in real life, and we would go, man, he's a great guy. He does all the stuff. He goes to church all the time. He's teaching Sunday school. He's being an awesome dad. He's like got all of his stuff in order. Jesus, why don't you just leave that alone? Like, like, like you probably ought to ask him, hey, you know what? You know what you need to do? You need to donate some of that. If you could just follow me as long as 10% of what you always come to me on a regular basis, that'd be awesome because that's going to support us and we're good. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looks at him and realizes that there is something in his life that has to be pruned away in order for him to follow Jesus and become that tree, to become that image, to become the person that God intends for him to be. And Jesus will attack in our lives the gap between our relationship with him and the things that we love, with the things that we love, we love more than him. And he says to him, are you willing to give that up? I read something on this passage this week and it said, here's the question that really you need to ask in your life when it comes to what am I allowing myself to be pruned up? And it is this, is there anything in my life that if Jesus asked me to leave it behind, I instead would want to leave Jesus? Is there anything in my life that if Jesus said, you need to that up. You need to do away with that. You can't have that anymore. You can't be a part of that anymore. What is it in my life that if Jesus asked me to give it up, I would instead think I may need to rethink my commitment to Jesus. Because whatever that is in your life, that is your wealth with the rich young truth. And Jesus made prudence to With a purpose of something better to come. So, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the tools that he uses. And they're not all harsh, although they can be. 
But what's important is for us to understand that he's making us into the people that he wants us to be. And are we willing to let that process take place? So in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the way that he uses teaching and his word to form us. We're going to talk about the providential relationships that he puts into our lives, the private disciplines of doing what God has called us to do, personal ministry and missions that allows us to be used by God and the circumstances in our lives that are pivotal in changing how we see life and who we are. We can talk about all of those, but if we're not willing to let the Lord prune us, then there are bigger questions at play than what he's going to use to do it. So what needs to be pruned from your life? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment, an opportunity we have to hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray in this moment that you would just speak to our hearts, Maybe for the first time this place revealed to some people what it is that you need to prune from them. Maybe it's something dead, diseased. Maybe it's something that is removing the vitality from their life. Maybe it's something that's seemingly healthy and good. Lord, it needs to be pruned for something better. Lord, I pray in this moment that we would be real and honest with you. And Lord, when we declare in this place that we're following you with no turning back, with no looking around, even if nobody else follows, Lord, that you would know the true condition of our heart and show us the areas where we may be singing that with our lips, but Lord, we're not acting it out in our lives. Lord, you give us the courage to just allow ourselves to be pruned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.